Good evening to you. Uh, we're continuing, as Carol said, our, our series on the Holy Spirit. And tonight we come to the subject of being filled with the Spirit. And I've been asked to address four specific questions, um, which are as follows. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? When does this happen? How do I get it? And how do I know when I'm filled with the Spirit? Now, to some people, this whole subject is rather contentious, so I want to go gently but firmly, I hope, through several uh, scriptures. Some, most of them should be quite familiar, and we're going to come to a, a closer understanding of what the phrase means, whether we already have it, and whether or not we want it if we don't already have it. And we shall see from tonight's study the concept of being filled with the Spirit, while an important one, is rather an elusive subject in Scripture. And perhaps this is deliberate on God's part. It would, in fact, be quite difficult to wrestle the biblical record into some sort of foolproof manual for being filled with the Spirit. The references to it, while frequent, don't even call it by the same name. Also, they've often mentioned it in passing while talking about something else. And invariably, they assume that we already know through experience what the writer is talking about. What then can we safely conclude from such passages? I think, first of all, we can and must assume that this was regarded in the Bible times as the normal experience of the Christian. So if it's not ours, then we're definitely missing out. Now, when I say that, I am, of course, aware of the cessationist argument if you have no idea what that means, then don't worry too much about it. But this is a real concern to some people, so I need at least to mention it in passing. The cessationist theory, so-called, is that the gifts of the Spirit came to an end at some point in the past, because we no longer need them because we've now got the Bible. Uh, what I want to say to that is that there is no scriptural or historical reason for believing that to be the case. Not only does the Bible give us no reason for concluding that the promise of the Holy Spirit would come to an end any time before the return of Jesus, it would actually mean that Peter was wrong in Acts 2.38 when he said that the promise was to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord shall call to himself. If you read that verse in its context, Acts 2.38, you'll see what I mean. So whether or not this cessation argument was forged for the following reasons, it is normally deployed these days, partly to decry the undoubted excesses of charismania. I won't name them. You probably have your own idea of uh, what constitutes an excess. And they're real enough at times, but partly also to explain and excuse the lack of power experienced in much of the church. But whatever the reason why it sprang up, from the moment it appeared, this teaching ignored the fact that not every part of God's church was experiencing that lack of power. In fact, there's an unbroken chain of miracles and healings, etc., stretching right back from the present day to the Acts of the Apostles. And these good things don't happen spontaneously wherever the Bible is read, as ought to be the case if the Bible really was all that we needed. No, they happen where spirit-filled people make themselves available to God and expect them to happen. We're supposed to be people of the word and of the spirit, not of the word alone. For more on the history of this argument, I highly commend to you a book by a guy called Francis McNutt, 
uh, he's got a bit of a silly name, but he's a very learned chap. The book is called The Nearly Perfect Crime, How the Church Almost Killed the Ministry of Healing. But if you just want to get to grips with the subject of the work of the Holy Spirit, I suggest you set aside a couple of hours one day soon and conduct a study of the whole Bible on the single word, spirit. You'll quickly discover that both in Greek and Hebrew, uh, there's just one word in, in each language for wind, breath, and spirit. I don't know if I'm pronouncing these correctly. They're quite hard to say. Ruach is one. And pneuma is the other. Does anyone like to do better than that? Pneuma reminds me of... What was that? The odd couple, was it? Where they went... Okay. You probably haven't seen it. It's a film from the previous century. Pneuma. So it's sort of pneuma, is that, that sort of... Nice. So the, the study can get a bit confusing at times because of this, this triple meaning of the words, uh, wind, breath, spirit. You can't tell if he's talking about which one he's talking about. But I guarantee that study was also a real eye-opener. In particular, you might well be surprised to learn that there are plenty in the Old Testament of references which are more than suggestive <laughs> of an Acts-to-type experience. Because we don't have time to go into all that today, I want to go straight to 1 Corinthians 12 as a picture of the Spirit-filled church, and then we'll pull together a few more references. These are mostly from Acts, so they should be relatively familiar to those of you who've been coming to Sunday morning services, because that's what we're studying. Let's begin with 1 Corinthians 12, 1-13. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to the other interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit... We're all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Well, as I indicated a moment ago, like many of our other go-to passages on the work of the Spirit, this one also was not written in direct answer to any of our four questions. Like all the rest of them, it simply assumes the readers are spirit-filled. And it goes on to say some important things about the gifts they're all experiencing, because they are filled. He doesn't want them, verse 1, to be uninformed about them. <clears throat> Verses 2 and 3 compare these gifts with the occult experiences that many of them had in their former lives as pagan worshippers. 
This morning, Jesse was teaching about one example of this, the girl in Acts 16 who prophesies perfectly accurately, but through the power of a demon. Paul wants to make clear that one of the greatest spiritual principles of them all, Jesse's nodding wisely already, this is not that. Really important. I'm going to say that again. This is not that. Back when the charismatic renewal was uh, new in the south of England, when, I was, uh, when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth and so on, when, when I grew up, cessationists used to make precisely this mistake, and they claimed that tongues and healings and prophecy, etc., were all demonic in their origin. But here, Paul quite clearly articulates that great spiritual principle, this is not that, filled with the Spirit. These gifts come from God himself. It seems likely from the way that Paul writes that the pagan equivalents of these spiritual gifts were each thought to come from a different deity. But this, says Paul, is absolutely nothing like that, verse 4. One spirit with one agenda gives a multiplicity of different gifts, all intended to work in harmony with each other. Likewise, verse 5, though there are many different ways of serving, we're all equally servants of Christ, no matter what our gifts are. The meaning of six is a little bit obscure to start with, but I suggest what it means is that even if two people have exactly the same gift, they may still be called to use it in very different ways. The person who, through her gift set, teaches really well in church might be completely lost in a classroom setting. The person who's highly pastoral one-on-one or in a home group setting uh, might be sunk in a matter of days if they had to pastor an entire church. In every case, verse 7, the various gifts used in their different settings are all manifestations of the same Holy Spirit. And they're given not for the benefit of the user, but they're given for the benefit of the community as a whole. Then in verses 8 to 11, Paul gives an entire list of different gifts, which Alice is going to go into in some detail next week. So... um, We'll wait for next week's exciting episode. But Paul does this to hammer home the point that they all come from the same Spirit, who gives them out as he himself decides. That is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is a gift giver. Verse 12 seems to suggest that the Corinthians were bigging up some of the gifts at the expense of others, therefore regarding one person as more important than another. No, says Paul, it's all come, all come from the same spirit, it's all equally important, and it's all for the same purpose. Verse 13, they've all drunk from the same spirit, just as they were all baptized in the same water into the same blessings. Here, you'll notice Paul says you drank rather than you were filled. But I think it would be a brave theologian who tried to divide those two concepts. You drink until you're full. Not infrequently, for example, in 1 Corinthians 2.4 and 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul refers to the work of the Spirit as something that is so obvious, it's like a tangible proof of God's presence and power in our lives. That is what being filled in the Spirit is supposed to look like. It's power. And that's the first proof that one is filled with the Holy Spirit, to answer the fourth question on my list first. It's power. And the second proof only comes over time. And Paul speaks of this at some length in Galatians 5, which we're not going to today, where he argues that just as we are saved by 
uh, by the Spirit, not the law. So we should also walk in the Spirit, not the flesh. What he describes as being the fruit of the Spirit, i.e. that which will inevitably grow slowly in us if we don't get in the way and we're filled with the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So the first proof relates to a life of power in the instant of need. The second speaks of the long term. Someone who's not content merely to operate like Samson did in the occasional gifting of the Spirit, but occasionally, uh, but actively seeks to allow that same Spirit to lead and affect the way we live from day to day, from hour to hour. In my experience, and I see nothing to contradict this in Scripture, Giftedness is no guarantee of good character. But equally, unfortunately, good character is no guarantee of giftedness. We need to be filled with the Spirit if we're to experience the supernatural power that is our birthright. Now that we've had that brief glimpse, and Alistair will be coming back to it next week, of what a Spirit-filled church ought to look like, with all those gifts happening all the time. I want us to read five short passages from Acts. So you've got your work cut out tonight. And these go some way to answering our three other questions. Let's turn first to Acts 1, 4 to 5, which describes events shortly after Jesus <coughs> rose from the dead. And while staying with them, he, that's Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice first that Jesus here uses yet another term to describe the same experience we've been talking about, baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, the sequel, which we're about to read in Acts 2, will show that that's just another way of expressing being filled with the Spirit. But notice, too, that Jesus regards this, whatever we call it, as a 100% essential thing to their mission. Then and now, we are not to leave home without it. What does Jesus himself say about it? You find this in in verse 10, which I haven't got a slide for. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Yes, another, yet another way of expressing being filled with the Spirit. And you shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. One Wonderfully holy and highly humorous elderly lady, I know, starts every day with the following prayer. Before, sometimes before she even opens her eyes, but before, certainly before she gets out of bed. Thank you, Lord, for another day to walk through with you. Now please come and fill me with your precious Holy Spirit so I can live it out to your glory. Amen. The elderly lady is not Carol, but... Um, <laughs> someone even holier, perhaps. Uh, if, if possible. Yeah, all right. But if, 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 I want to say that if, if, if the result of praying that prayer every day is the kind of life that she lives, then it's a prayer I want to make my own. And if this experience was so essential to the first disciples, why would we think that we can do without it? Next, Acts 2, 1 to 4. This is the fulfillment of the promise, uh, promise of Jesus. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind breath spirit. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit breath, wind, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit, wind, breath, gave them utterance. Just a bit of context so we can see what's involved. Chapter 1, verse 15, numbers these people who are present on this occasion at about 120, apparently both male and female. So contrary to what you may have seen in a painting, it wasn't just the 12 that received this gift. And in case you want to know what they were up to when it happened, chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, they continued steadfastly in prayer. We don't know exactly what they prayed for. But I'm guessing that if Jesus promised me I'd receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I wasn't to go out until that happened, I'd be praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Just on that topic, I met somebody recently who was confused about the Holy Spirit could come if he was there already. It's a good question in a way, isn't it? But I think the answer is that whereas God is omnipresent, which I take to mean he's in every breath I breathe as well as being all around me all the time, he's sometimes differently present than other times. Something happened in verse 4 that changed things radically. If he was already in the room, then the rushing wind-breath spirit was still an indicator of a move of the Holy Spirit, a filling of that which wasn't full before. Perhaps it's like the air is all around us, but it moves when the wind blows. The second verse in the whole of the Bible gives us a very early indication of this ability of the Holy Spirit to move. It says he moved on the face of the waters, even before the earth was formed properly. If you're everywhere already, how do you move? Well, we can't, but God can. If the Bible says he does, then he does. That's got to be good enough for me. If they weren't filled before and they were afterwards, then he somehow moved in to their lives in a way that he wasn't there before. So in a few minutes I say, come Holy Spirit. I'm not implying that he's not here already. I hope he's here in many hearts and is even guiding these faltering words of mine. Nor am I implying that no one here is already filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm just inviting him to do more of what he does, giving gifts and empowering us. Our first question was, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And I think we've already seen that it means to be empowered in a way we weren't before, open to him changing our lives for the better, maybe in ways we weren't before. It means tooling up for the job of witnessing for Jesus. It means opening a door to being used in supernatural ways. It means expecting one or more of the gifts to become available to each one of us, even for the common good. One thing I don't think being spirit-filled means ever is being out of control. St. Paul makes this crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 14, where he enlarges at some length on the need for order in the use of the gifts. If the gifts did totally take us over, then they'd be beyond our control, and there'd be no point in him telling them to rein it in, as he does. In fact, in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets 
In other words, the will of the human individual operating in the gift determines whether or not that gift is used. So our remaining two questions were, how and when do I get filled with the Spirit? And I think we can take these two together as we look at a couple more little snippets from Acts. First, I want to go to chapter 4, 29 to 31. But just as it were, on the way there, if you've got a Bible open, which you ought to have, because I might be tricking you, uh, on the way there, just notice, if you will, verse 8 of chapter 4. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, said bloody blah, blah. Then verse 13, when they saw the uh, boldness of Peter and John, and that they were unlearned ordinary men, they were amazed. So being filled with the Spirit, as they say Peter is, overcomes some of our natural disadvantages. But, that's in parenthesis. On to uh, 4.29. This is the prayer they say when under the first major persecution after Jesus' death. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now here I just want to draw your attention to two things. The first is that here we have a bunch of people, at least some of whom, certainly Peter and John, were already filled with the Holy Spirit back in Acts 2. Yet, look what happens in verse 32. They all get filled, i.e. filled again. This then is not a one-off experience. It's one we have to look for repeatedly. Secondly, notice that here, being filled with the Spirit is the answer to a very specific prayer. And I think that's why Luke records it in this way, for us to take notice. They pray, verse 29, not for the removal of the threats, which is what most of us might pray for, but they pray for boldness to speak the word of God despite the threats. It doesn't even occur to them, they don't even mention the threats. They just pray for boldness. And also, just as if it can be taken for granted, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and do lots of miracles and stuff like that. Well, how does God answer that prayer? By filling them with the Holy Spirit. One of the hows and whens, then, is to pray for boldness to witness and for miracles. On to our penultimate snippet for this evening. Acts 8, 13 to 19. Here, a notable magician, Simon the sorcerer, is impressed with what he sees. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Stat me vitals, he said, I'm amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also. And, of course, it doesn't go very well for him after that. But there's three things to notice here. One, yet another word for being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell on them. We used to have a, a, 
a cat that was so fat, he used to occasionally catch mice, but we thought the only way she would possibly catch them was by falling on them. But, <laughs> but anyway, Holy Spirit fell on them. It's another word for being filled. Uh, two, these guys are already saved and baptized, but they haven't been filled with the Spirit, and they need to be. So it is possible to be a Christian and be baptized and everything and, not, and just not be filled with the Spirit. Three, it is the laying on of hands in this particular case through which the Spirit comes in power upon them. Simon has already been amazed by the signs and great miracles that he's seeing before Peter and John even arrive on the scene. But when he sees the Holy Spirit come, that's when he says, give me this power. Something truly remarkable must have happened. Our last snippet, Acts 10, 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, different occasion, obviously. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter was just preaching and the Spirit fell on them. So as to the hows and whens, we really don't get to make rules. For this last lot, no, for the previous lot, it was a second blessing, like it's sometimes called. But those guys were already baptized, but they weren't filled. For this bunch, they get filled with the Spirit before they're baptized in water, before they've even made a profession of faith. They're not even Jews. So as to the when and the how, hard and fast rules should be taken with a very large pinch of salt. As Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, verse 8, the wind, breath spirit, blows where it wants. And you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit, breath, wind. It is up to the Spirit, not to us, when he chooses to come in power. And he's not likely to follow anyone's rules on the subject. But we can certainly hope that if we ask for boldness to witness and for miracles, then he will come and fill us and work through us. Either as the rub. Some receive this gift by others laying hands on them. Some who are just hungry for the gospel receive it. Some who pray for it receive it. But every believer God sends out into the world needs to receive it. So that being the case, why would he not come when we ask him to? What's this short study shown us in brief? that this is an experience we all need, that it's one we need repeatedly, that it's one who brings, that, that brings freedom to serve in miraculous ways, that it's one that affirms our faith. So whether we get baptized with the Spirit tonight, filled with the Spirit, refilled with the Spirit, drink of the Spirit, or have the Spirit fall on us, I pray that as we wait now, You'll experience him in that old, old way which is forever new to us. Why don't you stand and we'll 
Wait for the Spirit to come. Just stand in a position that's comfortable for you. You might want to uh, hold your hands open in front of you as if you to receive a gift. That's something that, uh, that many people find helpful. You might want to close your eyes, the better to concentrate. Let's just, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come. Lord, our hearts are expectant. So we say, Holy Spirit, come. Move among your people now. 